Thank you to Matt and the team for leading us so beautifully this morning. Uh, we're carrying on our series through the book of Proverbs, our topical series through this book as we consider various themes. And this morning we're starting, uh, we're going to look at two related topics. This morning we'll look at marriage and next week's parenting. Uh, this morning we'll consider the relationship between husband and wife and next week the relationship between parent and child, all from the book of Proverbs and what it has to teach us. Now, I know as soon as I say that, there will be a temptation to kind of switch off. I know that many of you aren't married yet. I know some of you are perhaps even divorced, some widowed. Uh, Some of you have been going through difficulties. Perhaps you're unequally yoked. Maybe you're going through challenges in your marriage. And I want to suggest to you that a sermon like this is still valuable to you. Uh, Firstly, for the unmarried here, Uh, who want to get married, uh, a sermon like this is vital that you would know what a God-honoring marriage is, what it requires, what it entails. Uh, For those who are already married, whether it's the newly married or the golden oldies, uh, this sermon is still important for you to encourage you and remind you of what is expected of you to honor God in your marriage. Uh, For the unmarried you, who probably perhaps won't be married, A message like this is still helpful for you for two reasons. Number one, some of these principles, most of these principles still apply for any kind of relationship. And secondly, you still have a vital part to play in the life of the church, in the way you counsel, the way you give advice, the way you come alongside others. It would be helpful for you to know what God desires of marriage so that you can counsel those around you in a meaningful way. And so I I know the temptation will be to switch off for some of us, but please do see that this is God's Word and that He has stuff to teach us from it. With all of that said, uh, to start us off this morning, I want us to consider one proverb, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 33, which reads this, "'The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked.'" But he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Who you woke up this morning thinking to, to themselves, you know what, today is a good day to be cursed. Today is a good day for hardships and afflictions and difficulties and trials. Anyone? I thought not. None of us desire curse. No, we desire blessing. We long for joy. We want peace. You see, all of us desire blessing, and this desire is nowhere truer than in our most important relationships. When it comes to our families, when it comes to our children, when it comes to our spouses, we desire blessing, not curses. We long for joy, not sadness. We long for peace, not strife. And where is this blessing to be found? Is it found in the world? Is it found in the ways of this world, the thinking of this world? No, our proverb says it is found in the Lord. It is the Lord who blesses the house, the family of the righteous. Who's the righteous? It's those who who fear God, who, who turn from evil, who walk wisely in His ways. And so if we desire blessing for our house, for our family, for our marriage, then we need to walk in the ways of God, not in the ways of this world, or even the ways of our own desires. 
Just listen to how this blessing is teased out in two other Proverbs. Proverbs 12, 7, the wicked are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. Or the house of the wicked will be destroyed, Proverbs 11, 14, 11, but the tent of the upright will flourish. Again, isn't that what we desire for us? Isn't that what we long for our marriages, for our families? I see, Proverbs helps us here because it guides us in the way of wisdom, wisdom that guides us to the blessing that we desire for our home. So therefore, with all of this in mind, I want to suggest to you seven key ingredients to a blessed marriage. And I've been encouraged by these because typically uh, sermons on marriage are typically about roles and responsibilities and those things. But Proverbs comes from a different angle. And I think it's helpful for us, for all of us. And so the first ingredient to a faithful, blessed marriage is faithfulness. Faithfulness. In Proverbs 2, we see one of the fruit of possessing wisdom. One of the fruit of being wise is you are delivered from the adulteress. Just look at Proverbs 2.16. For so you will be delivered from the forbidden woman. From the adulteress with her smooth words. Yet notice how Proverbs describes the adulterer. Verse 17. Who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. See, Proverbs assumes what the rest of the Bible assumes. Namely, that marriage is a covenant between two companions. It's a covenant between one man and one woman. In fact, it's a covenant between them and God. And the thing that makes this marriage covenant blessed of God is faithfulness. See, that's the problem of the adulteress in Proverbs 2. For the adulterer, faithfulness is irrelevant It's unimportant. Yet to enjoy the blessings of God, it has to be important. It has to be foundational. A a, a valuable passage that has to be read alongside this is Malachi 2, 14 to 15. It says there, but you say, why does he not? In this context, that means, why does God, God not show favor? Why does God not bless us? Here's the answer. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did you not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth." See, marriage blessed of the Lord is marriage that's, that's rooted and, and marked by faithfulness. Uh, turn with me quickly, if you will, to Proverbs 6.23. Uh, notice what the opposite of this is. If faithfulness meets God's blessing, what does faithlessness produce? Look at verse 23 to 33. Proverbs 6.23. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life, to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. 
Do not desire her beauty in your heart. Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes, for the price of a prostitute is a loaf of bread. But a married woman bring, hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he'll be pay, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor. And his disgrace will not be wiped away. The point is clear, I trust. Faithfulness equals blessing and joy and a precious life. Faithlessness, hardship, pain, dishonor. And so for, for those who are made, for those who, pursue, who are pursuing marriage, faithfulness matters. When you get married, one of the things you do in one form or another is you recite these vows. You say to your beloved, I promise to have and to hold you for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, to, in sickness and in health, to love and to hold you, to cherish till death to us part. You see, that vow is a, a statement of faithfulness, and you say it at the beginning of your marriage because faithfulness is essential for the health of your marriage. To enjoy God's blessings requires faithfulness. So, so that's the first ingredient I want you to note this morning. The second is this, sacrifice. A sacrifice. A good question to ask is, why does the adulteress abandon her covenant? Why does the, the adulterer turn from their spouse in unfaithfulness? Well, one answer that Proverbs gives is that the adulteress forsakes faithfulness to her spouse for the sake of her own pleasures and her own gratification. I consider Proverbs 7, 18. Listen to how the adulteress entices her victim. Listen to what she says. Come, let us take our fill of love till the morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. Now, that word for love there here speaks of an erotic love. It speaks of language. It's, it's referring to an appetite for lust and, and sexual pleasure. See, this is an invite to, to give in to your, to your sexual desires, to give in to your basic urges. And the point to get is this. The adulterer turns from his or her spouse for the sake of his or her own pleasure. For the adulterer, it's all about self, which is contrary to what marriage is about. Marriage isn't about my own wants, my own desires, my own fulfillment, my, my own interests. No, no, marriage is about giving self to and for another. You see, a marriage blessed of God doesn't ask, what can I get out of this? No, it asks, what can I give? See, marriage is about giving, said differently. It's about sacrifice. And I'm sure we would all agree Jesus is the greatest example of this, isn't he? Uh, Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. 
See, marriage, blessed of God, is, is marked by Christ-like giving. And may I suggest to you, it is this giving that makes marriage blessed indeed. Uh, consider Proverbs 11, 24 to 25. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and the one who waters will himself be watered. Now, I know that's not referring directly to marriage, but the application is clear. There is no blessing in being consumed by self. No, there is blessing when we give of ourselves to another. See, a marriage where husband and wife water one another, as it were, as they give of themselves to one another, as they're concerned for the other, that marriage is blessed. After all, who doesn't want to be in that kind of relationship? So, so that's the second ingredient. Third ingredient, and the one that probably many would have started with, is love. Love, the third ingredient is love. If, if we had to ask the question, what safeguards a spouse's faithfulness? Or, or if you had asked the question, what enables a person to sacrifice himself in marriage? Well, one answer we'd have to give, and which Proverbs gives, is love. Love motivates faithfulness. It moves sacrifice. I consider Proverbs 5. Uh, the first part of Proverbs 5 uh, warns again against adultery. It warns against the forbidden woman whose lips drip with honey. But the question becomes, what safeguards one from her enticements? What's, what keeps you from her way? Uh, listen to Proverbs 5, 15 to 19. Drink water from your own cisterns, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for the strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you all at all times with delight. And use the key verse, be intoxicated always in her love. I see, the remedy against lustful enticements and the adulterer is to give yourself to and delight yourself in and be intoxicated by your wife, your, your, your love. Uh, there, there's a Latin phrase that the ch early church used and the Puritans picked up, unus amor extinguit alium, which means one love extinguishes another. See, when those false loves and those forbidden lovers come with their enticements, the way to silence their voice is to be filled with your true love. It is to be delighted and intoxicated by your wife. In Proverbs 7, 18, we saw that that word love used there was an erotic kind of lust. It was more than lust than anything else. And here, the word love in 5, 18 is a different word. It's, it's a word that speaks of a selfless affection. And it's still used in the context of sexual desire, though, notice. And what's the significance? It's telling us that the marriage bed, as well as marriage in general, is all about a self-giving love. It looks to the satisfaction of another. See, it's not about self, but the giving of self that, that, in, that silences the, the enticements of the adulterer. 
giving of yourself to your wife, to, to your beloved, being enthralled with her. We, we see a picture of this in 1 Corinthians 7, don't we? Paul there exhorts husbands and reminds them that they belong to one another and they ought to give one another to one another. Why? So that sexual immorality would be warded off. And the point is to get simply is this. The relationship between husband and wife ought to be motivated and moved with love for one another. Uh, Ray Ortland put it this way in his book. He says, the point is to be crazy in love together. This is the good and wise will of God. Uh, consider a few Proverbs that, that speak to this. Proverbs fifteen seventeen: Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Better to be a vegetarian and love and not be a vegetarian and not love. That's how I read that. It says, better to have a house and a home of marriage that's filled with love than having all of all your material prosperity but lack to have a love for one another. Or consider Proverbs 20, 28. Steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king, and by steadfast love his throne is upheld. And our king is one who is in authority, and therefore it applies to husbands who are in authority in their marriage. And the point is this, if love preserves the king and his throne, how much more so will it not preserve marriage? In fact, as you know, the language of steadfast love and faithfulness is covenant language. It describes how God relates to his people, and therefore it makes sense that steadfast love and faithfulness guard and keep the marriage covenant. See, the application of all of this is actually quite simple. Keep yourself in the love of your spouse. Love, at love your spouse. Work at not only to maintain love in your spouse, but grow and deepen that love that you have for one another. John Kitchen puts it this way. He exhorts us, do not let your heart wander, but determine to rejoice in the one you are committed to by covenant. Now, just as an aside, I've been helped by uh, James LaBelle and Joel Beakey. They've got a book on marriage uh, that I found helpful. And in there, they, they speak of ways in which to kindle or maintain love. And they, they give these six advices. They say, remember the command to love and obey this command. We often think that this is something that we, we don't have to do. We need to remember this is a command that requires obedience. Secondly, constantly pray for God to, to grow your love for one another. Thirdly, look again and again to, to Jesus' love for the church, how he's loved us, and let that motivate you. Fourthly, spend considerable time together. Fifthly, uh, worship together privately, publicly. And sixthly, focus on encourage the good in one another. See, they say this, let all who marry remember that their mutual love is a precious pearl that must be prized and protected, a, a flame in the heart that must be tended and fueled. And, and so give yourself, work at deepening your love for one another. Here, here's one more motive to, to work for your love. Consider, Consider uh, Proverbs 30, 21 to 23. This is especially for the husbands. Under three things, the earth trembles. Under four, it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes king, a fool when he's filled with food, 
and an unloved woman when she gets a husband. You hear that? An unloved woman is more ferocious than an earthquake. So husbands, love your wives. That's the third ingredient, love. Fourthly, uh, fourth ingredient is diligence. Diligence. Uh, what should be obvious so far is that none of this is easy. None of this happens naturally. Faithfulness and sacrifice and love isn't easy. It requires diligence. And, and what we see that a marriage blessed of God is a marriage that doesn't happen by idleness, but hard work. It is made, of a, made up of a husband and a wife who, who recognize the importance of being diligent for one another's sake. Here's a set of Proverbs that's helpful. Proverbs 14, 1, The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. Proverbs 31, 27, She looks well to the ways of her household, and she does not eat the bread of idleness. See, these verses point out that the godly wife is diligent. She gives herself to the care of her family, her house, her, her marriage. She's not marked by a destructive folly of idleness. No, there's no such thing as a bored housewife in Proverbs. No, in Proverbs 31 even, she's characterized by diligence. She, she works, she gives herself to her household in caring for it. Now, before the lazy husbands you start gloating at their wives, remember the wives have chapter 31 to live up to. You have the other 30 chapters to live up to. Proverbs 24, 33 to 34 says this, A little sleep, a little slumber, and a folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. The point is easy enough. Like his wife, the husband should be diligent. He should work, and not just work at, his, at work in general in business, but in his marriage, in, in home, with children. He should be engaged diligently in his work, in his marriage. Say, blessed marriage is made up of two companions, companions that help one another diligently and fulfill their roles and their responsibilities. Again, I wonder your... I wonder how much marital strain is perhaps not a result of, of a lack of diligence. Perhaps our strain is a result of sloth setting in where we stop working for one another. We stop caring for one another in the way we work. We, we fail to fulfill our roles, our responsibilities. And the result is strain because one person has to carry all of it. See, no one would expect a lazy businessman to be successful, so why would you expect lazy spouses to be blessed? So that's the fourth ingredient. Fifthly, and appropriately perhaps, after all of these other things where we perhaps fail in, the fifth ingredient is grace. Relationships require grace. Let's be honest. We often fail to be faithful, we often fail to sacrifice, we often fail to love as we ought, we often fail to be as diligent as it's required, and, and therefore grace is needed. Uh, yeah, my wife has to deal with me a lot more than you guys, and she needs grace. And dear friends, so do we, all of us. And a set of Proverbs speaks to this. Proverbs 11, 16 to 17 says this, a gracious woman gets honor and, a violent, and violent men get riches, 
A man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. And the idea is this, that being gracious and kind are far, are far greater worth than being ungracious. And ungraciousness here is likened to being cruel and violent. See, true honor, true health, true blessing comes from being gracious toward one another. In fact, that word kind in verse 17 is the word chesed, right? That's the covenant love of God, right? That's where it's often used. God's loyal, yet long-suffering love for His people. And I don't think it would be wrong to say that, that the person who is gracious and kind in marriage is reflecting that love in their marriage. Think of how God treats us. Do you remember the story of the prophet of Uzziah? Uzziah is told to marry a prostitute, and so he marries a woman called Gomer, and surprise, surprise, she proves unfaithful. She runs away with another man. And Gomer's unfaithfulness is really meant to be a picture of, of our sin, right? How we again and again run away from God and are unfaithful in our sin. But the amazing thing is that Hosea is commanded to take her back and show grace. And that's a picture of how God treats us. It's a picture of God's covenant love with His people. And my point is this, when we are gracious to, to our spouses who fail us and sin against us, when we show kindness and loyal love, we are reflecting God's grace. We are displaying His kindness to one another. And in that sense, marriage is really a stage to display God's grace. It's an opportunity to show everyone something of God's kindness in the way we treat one another. I consider a few Proverbs that speak to this. Proverbs 12, 16. Fools show their annoyance at once, but the prudent overlook an insult. 15, 18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. 16.24, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. A marriage sweetened by grace, beloved, is blessed indeed. A marriage that overlooks insults and offenses and shows grace is one that shows the beauty of God's grace. Sixth ingredient to a blessed marriage is honor. One of the beautiful aspects of Proverbs on the topic of marriage is, is the affection that husband and wife ought to show one another that Proverbs tells us. Uh, consider Proverbs 31, 23. In referring to the ideal wife, it says this, Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. You see, here we see that this husband is esteemed. He, he's sitting in the place of honor among the elders. But the question is, why is this mentioned in the chapter all about the ideal wife? If this is about the ideal wife, why mention the honor of the husband? Well, the answer is the wife in being faithful, the wife in being diligent in her work, the, the wife in caring for her house, and her husband bring honor to her husband. In fact, I don't think it would be wrong to suggest that the husband is honored not because of who he, who he is, no, he's honored because of who his wife is. 
what, what, what's that saying? Uh, uh, behind every great man there's a? No one. A greater wife. Guys, come on. Husbands, fail. There's a greater wife, and Proverbs would agree. Uh, behind the great ideal husband of Proverbs 31 is the great wife of Proverbs 31. Uh, quite rightly does Proverbs 12:4 tell us, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like the rottenness in his bones. In other words, a wife who, who dishonors her husband, whether in what she says or what she does, is like a rotting cancer that, that robs him of life. But an excellent wife brings honor. She esteems, she, she exalts her husband. And so a godly wife, in how she speaks and how she behaves, seeks the honor, the esteem, and the good of her husband. But notice, husbands, this is a two-way street. Both husband and wife are called to honor one another. Consider Proverbs 31, 28, and 29. Her children raise up and call her blessed. Her husband also. And he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Husbands, did you hear that? The husband of the ideal wife praises her. He, he boasts of her. He exalts her in her. He compliments her and rejoices in her. Do, do, do you want an ideal wife? Well, be the ideal husband and praise your wife. In fact, consider verse 31. Give her, give her of the fruit of her hands. In other words, that is to say, allow your wife to enjoy the good that she does. And then it says, and let her works praise her in the gates. See, the husband who is honored at the gate because of his wife is to honor his wife at the gate. And, and you get the point. Husbands and wives honor one another in the way they speak of and behave to one another. See, nothing should come out of the husband or wife's mouth that dishonors and shames their spouse. I'd venture to say if we did more of this, our marriages would be blessed. Now, if, 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 if you guys walked out here and said, you know what, that's Shane, he's a bumbling fool. It'll hurt a little bit, but I'll get over it. If my wife walked out of here and she said, yes, yes, guys, you're right, he is a bumbling fool, I doubt I'll get over it. Why? Because our wives are important. They influence our self-image. If your spouse thinks you're beautiful, guess what? You feel beautiful. See, for a blessed marriage where there is joy, there needs to be a regular and meaningful honoring of one another. And I venture to say, Oh, a lot of marital unhappiness and disappointments would disappear if we did this well. If we regularly said, love, I love you. Love, thank you for all that you do. There's no one like you. What would I do without you? If we were meaningfully doing this, then our marriages, I trust, would be blessed. Seventh and finally, you perhaps didn't expect this one, but a blessed marriage as the ingredient of fear. And what do I mean by fear? Well, I mean the fear of the Lord, right? I've read some books where they say that the foundation of a good marriage is faithfulness, and that's important. That's the first point. But Proverbs would tell us that it lies somewhere else. 
No, the foundation of a blessed marriage, according to Proverbs, is the fear of God and a mutual fear of God. I consider Proverbs 31, verse 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Uh, for the unmarried, you notice the criteria of who to marry is not looks. No, looks are vain. They're deceitful. They will not last. Uh, remember Proverbs 11.22. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Where does discretion come from? It comes from fearing God. And so we could even say beauty without the fear of God is as useful as a gold ring in the snout of a pig. The point is this. The criteria for who to marry is actually quite simple. Do they fear God? Do they revere God? Do they live life in God's world under God? Do they love God? Do they know Him? Recall the importance of fearing God. Proverbs 19.23 The fear of the Lord leads to life. And whoever has it rests satisfied. Or Proverbs 22.4, the reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is riches, honor, and life. And apply that to marriage. For our marriage is to enjoy life and rest and honor. For our marriage to enjoy God's blessing, it needs to be built on a mutual fear of God. Uh, Proverbs, or not Proverbs, Psalm 128 is applicable here. It not only am, applies the fear of God to marriage and the family, but it also shows us what the fear of the Lord entails. Proverbs 28, 128, verse 1 to 4. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. And what does that look like? Who walks in his ways. And what are the results of fearing God in his ways and walking in his ways? Verse 2. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands, and you shall be blessed. And, you, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Do you see the marriage that is blessed of God is the marriage where there is a fear of God. Now, if we feared God, I would venture to say three things happened, and I took this from Dave Harvey's book, When Sinners Say I Do, and, and if we feared God, three things would happen. Firstly, the Bible would become the foundation of our marriage. See, God is the one who institutes marriage. This isn't a, a social convention. This isn't something that the government dictates to us. No, God institutes it, and therefore His will ought to guide it. And those who fear Him, who fear God, will walk in His ways and they will apply the Word of God to their marriage. The Word of God will to guide and govern how they think and how they respond, how they relate to one another. They need to be in the Word if they are to fear God as a couple. And so if you feared God, the Bible would become the foundation of our marriage. Secondly, if we feared God, the gospel would become the fountain of our marriage. I realize this is an uncomfortable truth that none of us want to recognize. We married sinners, right? We have all sinned against God, sinned against one another, and the most painful sins, the ones that cut the deepest, are, are, are the ones between spouses. 
See, sin produces a, a dreadful fear of God, yet the gospel produces a, a joyful fear of God because in the gospel, God saves sinners. In fact, to save sinners, the Son, Jesus, marries sinners. Uh, that's the point of Ephesians 5, isn't it? In Ephesians 5, after he points out the, the distinct responsibilities of husbands and wives, Paul says this. In Ephesians 5.31, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a mystery. This mystery is profound, he says. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. See, marriage is a, is a picture of Christ and his beloved, the church. He, he loved the church and gave herself for her, gave himself for her. As that old hymn says so beautifully, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. And see, this gospel is a fountain of life in a marriage full of sinners. Because in this gospel, we not only have pardon for our sin, but we are able to forgive our sins, forgive our spouse who sins against us. But in this gospel, we have the power for sanctification because we can trust Christ. He is the one who, who guides and leads and, and builds us up so that we would be faithful spouses. Uh, Wayne Mack in one of his books said, I can't remember where it was, but he said, when we get our relationship to Christ straight, then our relationship with one another gets straight. See, all of these ingredients we looked at, faithfulness and, and sacrifice and love and grace, all of these things are graces that Christ imparts. And therefore, we need to pray that he would give us the power to, to follow him and, and lead and follow his example as our beloved. And so the gospel is the fountain of life for marriage. But lastly, I want you to see, if we feared God, then the glory of God would become the focus of our marriage. Uh, one of the things we would do well to remember is the fact that marriage doesn't last. It's not the end goal. Marriage doesn't last forever. As Jesus says, Matthew 20 to 30, he says, in the resurrection that is in heaven, no one is married and no one is given in marriage. See, see, contrary to what the romance movies tell you, the chief end of man is not to get married and live happily ever after. No, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him. And marriage is only one means to that end. If you're married here, or if you're desiring to get married, know this, as husband and wife, you are to help one another glorify God, you are to grow one another to enjoy God, and you are to prepare one another for heaven so that the other would enjoy God and know God. May I suggest to you, when, when this eternal perspective is in view, when this end goal is maintained in marriage, then our marriages become a blessing. How, how so? Well, because when marriages become difficult, when we are tempted to give up on one another, when we are tempted to neglect our duties, when we are tempted to follow the ideas and the patterns of this world, this reminds us that marriage isn't about me, it's not even about my spouse. It's about God. It's about seeking His glory. Not my good. And, and marriage is good. It is a wonderful good. 
but ultimately it's for God's glory. And, and so, dear friends, as we, as we relate to our spouses, as some of us prepare to get married, may our ultimate desire be to have blessed marriages because we seek to glorify our God. May that be our desire, to glorify Him in how we live as husband and wife. Trust the Lord, the Lord will bless us and encourage us with these ingredients. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that it gives. Thank you for the challenges that it offers. We do pray, dear Lord, that we would be those who not just hear but obey. Dear Lord, we want to thank you first and foremost for our spouses, for those who are married. We thank you that you have gifted us with, with a partner, a companion to love and to hold. And, and we pray, dear Lord, that we would cherish those whom you've given us, that we would be marked by Christ-like love. And, and dear Lord, that you'd bless our relationships this way. For those who aren't married, for those who perhaps are struggling with, with divorce or those who are widowed, would you not encourage them even with the love that Christ has for them? Uh, that Christ is our husband. That he is the, the, the beloved of the church. And thank you for the reminder that the cross is that he's given all for us. And so we pray that we would even, in light of the gospel, seek to glorify in all that we do, in all that we say, in all, that we, in all the ways we relate to one another. Would you not be glorified? Would you not be praised? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.